Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 144. The third stop on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal at Super Tubos in Peniche, opens its competition window tomorrow with the world's best surfers looking to shore up their respective positions heading into the mid-season relegation line. After the opening two stops, the Billabong Pro Pipeline and the Hurley Pro Sunset Beach, the women's field is currently joint-led by five-time world champion Carissa Moore and freshly minted CT winner Molly Picklam sharing points at the number one spot, with Australia's Jack Robinson leading the men's field. At the moment, according to Forecaster Surfline, it looks like we'll have good-sized swell and favorable winds for several days of the window, and it'll be quite the show to see the world's best surfers tackle Europe's version of Pipeline in Super Tubos. The Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal will run from March 8th through the 16th, 2023, and will stream live on worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. All right, episode 144. Today's guest is someone we are so fortunate to be speaking with because she is one of the greatest surfers of all time. The reigning eight-time world champion who blitzed the 2022 Rip Curl WSL finals in heroic fashion, mowing through Brissa Hennessy, Tatiana Weston-Webb, Joanne DeFay, and taking down the five-time world champion Carissa Moore not once but twice to claim her historic eighth title. We unpack her feelings about that day, where she's at in terms of motivation at this point in her career, and her relatively slow start to the 2023 season ahead of the upcoming event in Portugal. As always, she is candid, thoughtful, and very generous with her time and insights. Please enjoy the lineups conversation with Australia's Stephanie Gilmore. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut you. Lips. And now I just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's like you're boxing. All right, the uh, the champ is here. We have reigning eight-time world champion Stephanie Gilmore back on the lineup. We're coming off the season opening back-to-back events in Hawaii, and we're catching her, I think, en route to Europe for the Mayo uh, Rip Curl Pro Portugal. But Miss um, Gilmore, thank you so much for coming on the lineup today. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's good to be back. <laughs> I was just trying to remember the last time we talked. It was like end of 2009. I think we were figuring out what we were doing. I think we were in Hawaii. Maybe we both had respectively big nights. And <laughs> it was an enjoyable conversation. But I remember thinking like, oh, yeah, my head hurts after after that. But um, but where are you today? Are, are you are you not in Hawaii, but you're not in Europe. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'm on my way to Portugal. Um, I kind of tried to stay in Hawaii as long as I could, knowing that we're heading to the cold. I just I saw a lot of people rush back to Australia and get some time at home, but um, I've always felt more comfortable just staying on the road. Like I don't know, it seems harder to go home, and and you get a little taste of being at home, and then it's like you got to pack up and leave again. So I just prefer to to just keep on trucking and and uh so i'm here in los angeles and um i guess it stop in and see my sister who lives here and see some of my good friends and then uh head to portugal on friday that's interesting the way you put it it, it reminds me of something that um stephen bell belly 
told me years and years ago um, about about Kelly. And I remember, I think we were in Jeffrey's Bay and I, I can't remember if the waves were good or bad or whatever, but as soon as the event was over, the entire tour left and the waves were meant to be good for like another four weeks. And Kelly was just going to stay. And I remember Belly was talking to me about it and he goes, he goes, can you believe that the best surfers in the world are, are not going to stay for like world-class waves at one of the world-class right-handers on the planet. They're all just running home in between events. And I go, that's why Kelly has won so much is because he he was comfortable kind of saying, you know, the road is my home and, and I'm just here to figure out surfing. You know, is that something for you, just hearing you talk about it, that was always there for you where you were like, oh yeah, no, look, like when I'm home, I'm home, but when I'm on the road, I'm going to kind of try to avoid switching mindsets. Or is that something that you kind of came to through discovery? Yeah, I think that I just fell in love with traveling from a young age, you know, like I've, I have such a deep respect for Australia and where I, I live and where I grew up surfing. And it, it's given me so much, um, I don't know, for my, my skills in surfing, like it's taught me a lot about just, yeah, being a competitive athlete and, and uh, surfing in such a crowded lineup. It's given me so much <laughs> to take with me on the road. But there's something about being on the road that I just really enjoy um, and knowing that home is always there. You know, it's not really going anywhere. Um, now we have such great technology where we can stay in touch with people on video. It's It's really good. Stay in touch with family and and all that is really good. But yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely, I can relate to Kelly a bit in that respect where I just, I feel comfortable wherever I am. Like I'm obviously in a very lucky position where I can afford to make myself very comfortable wherever I am. And I have my boyfriend on the road with me a lot of the time. And, um, and I think, I mean, this is my 17th year on tour and, uh, and so I have a lot of friends around the world and I'm, I feel like wherever I stop, I can just, yeah, I feel like I'm at home and I know where to go surf. And I, you know, I, I feel like it's, you get to a point where you can drive around the streets without pulling up Google maps. Right. <laughs> and that's when you realize, oh, okay, this is, this is a home to me. You know, I can find my way around. I know the restaurants that I like to eat at and, and, um, and that's really when it starts to, to feel easy to just stay on the road and keep it going and, and then when I do get home, I'm actually finding it easier to leave when I'm at home. So I'm, I'm enjoying right. just keeping it on the road for as long as I can. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, we'll get into it because I think you know, my time at the ASP and your time is sporting dominance of overlap pretty closely. So, but the, the 17 years on the road, I mean, it's something that we see with both surfers sort of at the end of their career or just not being able to requalify or even staff that kind of move on. Mm -hmm. And it it's tense, you know, for people who have made the road their home for a good portion of their life, in a lot of our cases, over half our lives. And it's almost like being reintroduced into sort of normal society um, away from the circus is it's rough. And I think we've probably both seen people struggle with that. Is that something that's ever on your mind, you know, in terms of do you ever feel like you'll be able to reintegrate back into like, <laughs> I'm going to stay in one space for, you know, more than six months? I get asked that a lot, you know, like if you had to stop today, where are you going to live? Like what's right, yeah. what's that one place that really captures your heart that you would stay forever or raise children or whatever it is? And um, mm. It's hard to go past Australia. You know, we have really great life, um, good surf, uh, plenty of space and and um, a really healthy lifestyle back there. But, yeah, I don't know. I've always 
dreamed of just having a a place in each stop, you know, having mm. a, a a place to call home in each destination around the world and and these are all usually places where we have had contests in the past. Right, yeah. Um and to just kind of keep it rolling, you know, I love spending that cyclone season early part of the year in Australia and then the wintertime in Australia is actually also really it's great for surf, but you know, I love to take off to you know, uh, California and Mexico and that kind of northern hemisphere part and then to go to Europe in the October season is obviously the best part for that. So I kind of feel like I could see myself just bouncing around for a long time, but I'm sure I'll finish up in Australia. Mm. Well, we're going to get into the the goatness of it all, you know, your historic eighth world title, you know, where you're at these days in terms of, you know, contentedness and hunger and legacy. But but I thought the best thing to do would be to start uh, talking about the present, you know, currently sitting at 11th on the rankings, uh, one spot below the relegation line, coming out of the Hawaiian leg of the 2023 championship tour. We got a 17th pipe, a fifth at Sunset Beach. You know, we're sitting in Los Angeles en route to Europe. Where are you at kind of psychologically with how the opening two events went and, and how you're looking at, at um, Super Tubos in Portugal? Yeah, I think I'm just always reflecting on last year. You know, I had mm. such a bad start to the year last year. Um, I think I was sitting in a worse position this time last year than what I am now. <laughs> um <laughs> So I can kind of have that in my back pocket as like, it's okay, you know, if you're not making the cut right now, but we've got three events. Last year I got my, um, one of my best results was in Portugal. So, um, you know, I had that equal third place there. I lost to Lakey in the semis, but it was just that confidence booster that I needed to go into the Australian leg and, and just kind of keep pushing to get better. Um, it feels funny, like it's definitely, I've had some thoughts about like, oh, that would look really bad if you won an eighth title and then didn't make the cut the next year. That would look really bad. But at the end of the day, that's just like my ego that would be hurt the most. Um, so it's sort of just thinking about like how that would look, how that would feel, accepting it, which I had last year. I kind of accepted it too, but at the same time, I just wanted to keep pushing through and, and be like, hey, just you still have a chance. So push as hard as you can and um, get a great result and, you know, see what the year will, how it will unfold. But I don't know. I just, I enjoy it. I, I, I still love competing. There's, there's something really awesome now that we have these five young women that have come mm. on tour and these rookies who are just insanely talented and they they just get me so excited to want to surf better and I love that feeling I I really yes I've won eight eight world titles but I just feel like there's so much more to learn and and I know I've got a lot of weaknesses and I don't know as a competitive person that's just something that I'm always thinking about and how I can get better and and so yeah I'll head to Portugal and see what happens <laughs> I mean it's it, it's like kind of the the secondary maybe unintended consequence of the redesign of the tourism competition framework you know with the mid-season relegation most people are probably thinking well you know the first five events are about survival but probably something that you've experienced maybe more so than anyone else but but certainly you or carissa where it's like 
Well, the other part of it is if you don't have a great start to the season, you have to kind of keep these two spaces in your head of I'm the reigning world champ and oh, geez, I might not even get a full year on tour. And as you pointed out, like, it sounds like you're approaching that, that tension through, you know, the lens of, of, okay, well that, that's just my ego talking. And that feels like a pretty intentional way to kind of combat it for you, where you're like, all my surfing's there. Like, I know how to win these events, even against whatever generation we're up against right now, like still strong enough to win at any of these spots on tour. But if I let that ego part of me kind of inspire fear, then that's probably where I'm going to get distracted enough to where something's not going to work out. Exactly. And it's mm. just sort of understanding that that ego's there and, um, you know, it could be a distraction for the worse or it could push me to be better and to, to be able to get those results that I need. Um, you know, you really have to look at those fears and whatnot as a tool um, to be able to push through and get better. But yeah, it's, um, it's a funny space to be in because exactly you're dealing with like, oh, it's a survival thing, but at the same time, yeah, it's like, well, it's like a legacy thing. Is this going to damage my legacy if I don't make the cut? (laughs) (laughs) It could in my mind, but at the same time, I, I also just, I have no, um, I don't know. That's not a fear of mine, you know, like the surfing on tour is so good and there's only 10 women that make the cut and that's such a small number and everyone is surfing so great. And I don't know. I just, it wouldn't be the end for me, you know, it's just, no, uh, of course not. just an, an extra little part of the story, but I can still make the cut. So we're talking really, we're, we're having <laughs> yeah. a really sad conversation right now. That's something that hasn't even happened, but <laughs> of course. Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's, it's, and this is maybe one of those, I wouldn't say unintended consequences. I think people knew it was going to be like an impactful kind of like five event sprint. So much can change event to event. You know, you can go from like, well, I was beneath the cut line and now I'm pretty much locked in with one result or vice versa, right? Where where you're like, I think I'm pretty safe. And then, you know, a couple of things happen and you're like, oh man, that that didn't work out at all. Mm. You know, I, and and I mean, as far as we were talking about the weather kind of before we started recording, and I do have a theory and I'm going to get my surf line has been confusing me agenda off once again on this podcast. But I I do think La Nina has just thrown like such a spanner into wave conditions everywhere. And we had some magic days across both, you know, Pipeline and Sunset Beach, but pretty tricky forecasts in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And not that you would ever be someone that's like, well, if we had proper waves, it would have been different. But that does kind of play a role in the randomness of the results. Would you not agree? Definitely. Um, and I've always been one to take my losses on myself. You know, I, I'm, mm. I'm not one to really blame my coach or my boards or anything. You know, you won't usually see me run up the stairs, punch a bunch of holes in my boards after I lost because <laughs> um, <laughs> it was probably a good board. That's why I was writing in the first place. But I think that um, – <laughs> Yeah, you you have to appreciate that in surfing we are dealing with the ocean. We're dealing with something that's completely out of our control and no matter how much training mentally and physically that you do, you're always going to have that one element that is just, yeah, it's always the wild card and you don't know what you're going to get. And, and uh, yeah, it's that's kind of why we love it so much as well. You know, I've... And that's what I enjoy so much about the event like Sunset because when it is pumping, you always get these surprising results of, especially in the men's, you know, you see these athletes Mm. come through that you're like, whoa, 
Baron, who's this Baron kid? And here he like he he wins the event as a wild card, or um, you know, to have like Gabby Bryan, she's so strong out there, and and you're looking at these these new athletes that really you, you can't put your money on John John or um gabby or any of these guys because you just don't know what you're going to get and i think that's why that event is awesome and then when it's small it's even more of a random wild card but um but yeah tough to surf so it's just i don't know it it all adds up to why surfing is unique and and it's one of the sports that um just keeps the athletes continually evolving and, and you just have to learn so much about the ocean and i think that's why it's that's why I'm still here anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've mentioned uh, that you're in L.A. And, and L.A. does seem like one of those locations that's become one of your probably many second homes over the last few years. Not quite as renowned um, globally for world-class surf as perhaps, you know, Snapper Rocks or uh, Duramba would be. But when you are in L.A., like on a stopover like this, do you worry about like, oh, I need to get waves or I need to go training or is it just a different kind of for, for a few days? Is it just a different routine for you that kind of breaks you out of where you've been? Um, I like to, yeah, mix it up and, and just kind of, um, I don't know, have a little break in between. Like I'm not afraid to take a couple of days off where I'm just cruising and um, I don't know, eating at good restaurants and just taking that time to sort of switch off from, being in a place like Hawaii where it feels like I mean we were there for a month and a half and Mm. and Hawaii has a different feeling where it's yes it's very relaxing and it's this beautiful tropical island with great surf but it's also very intense and it feels like for that entire month and a half like you're on you're you're listening to the ocean and you're feeling like intimidated by the crowds and the waves and it's it's quite draining on the the energy system because you just always like wondering what the comp's going to be like and what the conditions will be like and so it's pretty intense like that but um so yeah I'm here just to relax I'll do a bit of training um like gym work stuff but the surfing is I'm not too fussed if I'm not in the water Uh, especially here it's like (laughs) it's been raining so the water's actually really gross (laughs) I don't really want to get like some bacterial infection before I fly to Portugal (laughs) but um yeah, I think it, it's okay. I, I trust my surfing and I know that if I'm keeping my body physically fit outside of the ocean, then I can show up and, and um, jump on a board. And, and also I credit to my shaper, Darren Hanley. You know, I've, I have some great boards with me and also my coach Tom is picking up some new boards in Australia and he will bring them over. And I think that I just have had such a great relationship with Darren where I can jump on a brand new board and I know exactly how it'll feel or what fins I need to swap to if it's, you know, needs a little something different. And, and that's, um, yeah, that's the beauty of having that really strong relationship with Darren. I love it. We're going to take a a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors and we'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. All right, so this, this comes up on the podcast from time to time when I'm wrestling with my own personal biases and discussing things, but we talked about it before the break. You and I have known each other for a while. I started with the then ASP in late 2005, started on the North American tour in 2006, and then started covering international events not long after. Your rookie season was 2007. You won the world title that year, um, an achievement I had a, a relative front row seat for. Um, and, and I guess, and again, this goes to the personal biases thing, but I also think my personal biases are objectively right, which is I've been of the opinion that year in and year out for the past decade and a half, you are one of, if not the favorite at each event, you know, and also for the world title every season. And fortunately for me, you've proven me right quite a lot, um, but maybe no more so than when you claimed your historic eighth world title last September, where you battled through the entire field of the Rip Curl WSL finals to do so. It's been a few months since that moment. Where is your head at in terms of what happened on that day and where, you know, this eighth world title kind of sits with you in the, in the sort of the pantheon of your career? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, to be honest, I feel like I'm still relishing in the glory of that moment in September last year. And that's possibly why my first two events didn't really work out as well as I'd hoped. <laughs> right, sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm still drinking champagne for breakfast. No, I'm not. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I don't know. It, it's so fascinating how um, as an athlete you have these goals and you, you set out on these adventures throughout the year to try and achieve these moments. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think having been on sitting on seven world titles, like I was reflecting on winning my seventh world title and how great a moment that was to equal Lane Beachley as, as the most. And, um, and I remember thinking that this feels great, but I could already sense this pressure of like, will I make it to number eight? Is mm -hmm. it possible to get to number eight? 
you know, I'm sitting there. I'm, I didn't, uh, I won the title, but I didn't win the event that year. Carissa won the event at Honolulu Bay. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I remember thinking, oh man, like these girls are so good. And Carissa's already at three world titles. Maybe she had four by then, but it just seemed like it was slowly, you know, to reach seven was a monumental moment, but it was also like, felt like the eighth was just slipping out of my reach. Uh, and I was, I guess, thinking more about did I still have that desire in me to apply myself in such mm. a way to be able to do it? Like knowing that an entire year, like you really have to commit to an entire year and stay consistent the entire year to come out with the world title. Um, did I have that fuel in the tank to be able to do it? And yeah, and then when the format changed, I didn't like it, to be honest. I was like, okay, I, I understand the whole like final event for the fans, for the advertising, for the WSL business. It's an amazing way to be able to capitalize on the advertising and marketing and all this sort of stuff to be able to just say to the fans, hey, on Saturday at 8 a.m. we are going to start this finals day and we'll crown world champions by the end of the day. Um I was thinking about how surfing is still, I would say the biggest thing that lets professional surfing down is the fact that we don't know when the contest will run. Even if the forecast is pumping, you wake up in the morning and it's like, oh, it's not as good as we thought or tomorrow looks like it's going to be better. We're not going to run today. You're probably going to lose fans. You're going to lose traction. That's just, you know, that's the the nature of surfing. And um, anyway, so I you know, obviously had to come to accept the new format. And mm. and as time went on, I started to think, I don't know, I just kind of thought, oh, maybe it cheapens the world champion. Like to just say you can win it in one event, I don't know, that just doesn't sit right with me. Like Carissa's just dominated a whole year. And the first year, yeah, she won the world title. And then when it came around to the, the for me to get another shot at it because I had a shocker in the first finals, I was like, okay, maybe this is the only way you can win another world title because I'm not sure if I could, you know, really stay consistently at the top beating these girls the entire year. Like if I can sneak into the finals and then just have a hell of a day, then I could probably make it happen. And I started to think this is probably the only way I could win another world title. So yeah, that happened. I feel like I was just, peering over the edge of the cut every time like oh I could just make it in okay I just made the first cut that was crazy but here I am I get to Tahiti I'm like well this is event you know you want to bet against me every time here in Tahiti this is not my strength at all um but I just made the cut again so I snuck into the final five and I remember thinking okay well here at if anything, you just get another shot to do better than what you did last year because I probably thought about how poorly I performed in the finals mm. the first time around for the entire year after it. I was like going, oh, my God, that was so embarrassing. Didn't even make one heat. Um, you know, the, I just was underprepared. Like I can't believe I had such a great opportunity and I didn't rise to the occasion. And so, yeah, if anything, I was like, okay, you got another shot. The universe works in great ways where, you know, if you really want something and you, you get that opportunity again, then really do what you can, do what you will with it. But this time around, it was like learn from your mistakes and, and try again. So, um, 
yeah, showing up to the final day again. I mean, I had a really good block here in, in LA with a friend of mine. We trained super hard and really dialed in the nutrition and and I just committed to the the challenge early. You know, it wasn't like show up a few days before and see what happens. Mm. It was like I really committed to it early. And and I, I don't know, I wasn't like I was okay with whatever the result would be. I kind of was okay with the fact that Carissa would have six world titles by the end of it. Right. I was thinking six world titles is huge. That's right there. She's only one more away from me. Like, okay, I I feel like I know deep down that Carissa will go on a, a tear and she'll probably win more than anyone for the women. But I felt like I had this desire to get to eight first. If I could get there first, then whatever happens after that, I don't care. So, so yeah, we get to the finals, we get to lower trestles, and um, I just was, I don't know, I, I really, even when I was doing my interviews with Make or Break and I was doing my interviews with people leading into the event, it was kind of like no one even thought about me because of my poor performance the year right. before. I was coming in at fifth. I was like this, I don't know, everyone was like, oh, it's definitely the Tatiana, Carissa, Joanne, and Brisa, a lot of the focus was on them. I was kind of right. like, oh, I'm there. And it, yes, maybe I'll make a heat, but I wouldn't focus on me. And so I feel like the pressure was off in that sense. And this time around, I just had different intentions. You know, I was like, hey, why not try and go the whole way? It, it's interesting too. I'm glad you brought up the, the focus thing from make or break, but really you could probably say the entire surfing world has that preoccupation with like, all right, that person's achieved something who's next, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that kind of goes back to my point on my own personal biases, but also them being somewhat objectively right in the sense that I feel like the, the surfing industrial complex was working hard, works very hard to move people on as fast as possible. Right. And so for someone like yourself, who's achieved so much, you've probably felt a version of that um, from whether it's the media or the sponsors or the whatever, just the way people talk about surfing in the sense of like, all right, she's had her time. Who's next? Who's next? And the reality is, and I kind of say this uh, as, again, as objectively as possible, like your surfing at pretty much every stop to this day is still in the favorite space um, and for the world title as well, um, even if the narrative is trying to shift on, right? And it, it's interesting to hear you talk about the way you approach last season's event because you're like, well, I did have to perform throughout the entire year. I had to perform at places like Tahiti to join this group to have a shot at the world title. I'm somewhat flying under the radar, even though I'm a seven-time world champion. And it just showed, really. Like, I mean, I could, like, you pulling these reverses that I've seen you try in competition forever, um, usually kind of on, like, throwaway heats and stuff, but just nailing them. And I think, and it did feel like once you got through that first heat, the, the floodgates kind of opened for you in terms of performance. And I think the entire field on the women's side was sort of terrified just watching you come through. But you've, you've said that you are, you're still very competitive, but in terms of your ability to perform and, and just your surfing ability at such a high level, are there spots on tour in 2023 where you don't consider yourself at least an odds on favorite to win the event? Oh, definitely. I mean, like where? I mean, pipeline, I don't know. It depends on what the conditions are like. But pipe, right. I mean, even sunset, I've won out there, but I'm really not confident at sunset. Um, mm. 
Uh, what about like lower trestles, for example? You're Portugal, surfing at lower like, trestles. Okay, lower trestles for sure. Like, mm. and I I have said to myself a few times, like, hey, if you can get into the final five while the finals are at lower trestles, you've got a shot at the world title for sure. Mm. I've won that event when it was just an event in the past, and I yeah. always looked forward to lower trestles. Um, and that's something that you know I'm, I'm always trying to work on is to find like when I'm at a wave where I'm completely comfortable with the, what the wave's like I, I know I can choose I can pick the eyes out of the lineup I can find waves you know I can without priority I can take off on a wave that to my opponent might, might only look like a five but I can turn it into a seven five um, mm. I have confidence at a wave like trestles to do that but in other places I don't and that's because I haven't put in the time um, mm. you know I'm I've sort of I'll just do the bare minimum of what I have to do at that wave to maybe make a few heats, but I'm really not applying myself. And that was one of my goals this year. It was like, hey, you've got to step outside your comfort zone in places right. like Tahiti and in places like Pipeline and and just kind of, you know, that's what sport is. That's what um, life is about. It's about pushing yourself into these new realms and challenging yourself and learning new things about what you can do, how far you can go, uh, what you can achieve and, and um and where you'll fail because that's where you learn the most. So, um, yeah, I think going into trestles, I had that confidence. Like if the waves mm. are good, if the water's warm. Okay, the first year of the water at Lowers was freezing and I was first heat <laughs> of the morning. My feet were numb. I was like pissed off at the whole thing. I was like, this sucks. It's cold. Uh, you know, my, my frame of mind was just shocking i the surf was so crowded leading into it i couldn't catch mm. waves i was like battling 12 year olds to try and practice for the finals i was like this whole thing is just you know frustrating me so then i get to this second time around and i was like i just need to change the way i'm looking at this whole picture so mm. and it, it really it changed my free surfs it changed everything i was paddling out there with strong intentions like i i, I wanted to have a bigger presence in the free surfs you know I was I think there was at one point it was two days before the finals um and it might have been the first moment that I got in Carissa's head because I'd actually paddled around her maybe a little more sneak sneaky but I paddled around her (laughs) and she didn't notice maybe she thought I was going to go left but I took off on a wave and she dropped in on me and then she did a big turn and I was coming up behind her in a bottom turn and I went up to hit the lip and she was like, oh, she didn't see me. And I was like, keep going, keep going. And then she kicked <laughs> out. And it was such a small moment and maybe Carissa didn't even like think anything of it. But in my mind, I was like, oh, cool. That's one that I'm already kind of in her head. Got her, yeah. Um, right. And I also think Carissa wasn't even thinking of me at that point. You know, I really wasn't even someone that she would – consider of meeting in the final event so but for me that was a good tick like cool we're gonna we're gonna start strong here and I was taking waves in the lineup off the guys you know I was battling crew and just saying like I want this I want to be here Mm. I want to have presence in the free surf so when I show up at the finals everyone knows I'm I'm really I want to be a part of this and um so yeah then for the finals day, it was just like, okay, the first heat, I was repeating everything that I did the year before, mm-hmm. having an absolute shocker. I was looking at Brisa thinking, Brisa, this is your first time in the finals. You're supposed to be 
nervous and falling off right, and right. doing weird things. Not me. Like it should be the other way around. And Brisa was just so cool, calm and collected. And, and, uh, it was like, she was, you know, doing it for a third or fourth time. And, and I just thought, okay, this is a shocker, but that was the turning point. And the last like minute when I needed a wave, yep. if I, I just knew, I went back into like a, a mode that I could turn on so easily when I was a, a rookie or when I was a kid, mm. you know, I just, I loved winning so much. I loved the game of like, okay, push him into a wave to get priority back and then try and find something that you can get a score on. And I don't know, I just love those little games that we play while we're competing. I'm glad you brought that part up too, because that's something that I'm sort of endlessly fascinated about with surfing and particularly with someone like you. And and remember Andy Iron said this years ago, he said, you know, everyone wants you to win your first world title. And then the second you win, you've got a target on your back, even by people that wanted you to win that first one. And it does feel like there is a stark, stark difference psychologically between being like an up and coming insurgent force, um, and then being the establishment, right? And you've obviously played both. Like you were coming up at a time when, you know, Chelsea Georgeson and Sofia Milanovic and, and Lane Beachley were so dominant, but you were able to not only kind of have this step increase in terms of ability and talent and performance, but you probably also benefited from like, hey, I'm new on the block and like there's no expectations on me compared to that establishment class. And it probably feels wildly different once you've won a few world titles and everyone's talking about who's next. Is that something that you've been like really sort of aware of throughout your career? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about how much um, hype there is around Katie Simmers and, sure. and I was thinking about how, I mean, she's an excellent surfer and, you know, I've spent a little bit of time with her recently and she's, she's cool as hell. And I think that cool as hell, that doesn't make sense. Cool as, <laughs> cool as cool. Uh, it's for your tense, right? Like, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I was thinking about how um, when I came on as a rookie, I was sort of like in my own, like uh, there was Jessie Molly Dyer and she came on the tour before me, but of the girls of my age who were really trying, like making heats and getting good results, it was just me. Um, and that was for a few years until the Chris's and, and Sally's and all those girls came along. And, um, but I was thinking about how for someone like Katie, who is a phenomenal surfer, she's coming in with a whole group of women like Molly Picklam and Betty mm. Lou and these, all of them are so good that I felt like in, in my time when I came on tour, it was an easy one to be like, oh, Steph's, Steph's going to come out, guns blazing. She's probably going to be one of the best. Um, right. And probably, I mean, to win a world title in the first year, yeah, that's, that's crazy cool. But to think about Katie coming on and, and she's actually going to be dealing with the Mollies and the Betty Lou's who are so good that they'll probably, you know, all th three, four of them are going to be battling so hard for this hype, for this limelight that mm. yeah, I didn't have to deal with that. It was weird. It was kind of like it was just a solo show for me. But, you know, to see these young girls come through and and I think like Molly is just such a strong surfer that she's going to be wanting it even more than the other girls. And, and it's, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to just to think about what, how times have changed and how I, I was in a, you know, timing is everything for me. I think totally. I had a lot of success purely because of I came in right between the generational shift mm. 
and it was like a yeah just a real moment where I could make my mark and and um and yeah I don't know I just well there's something in that too that obviously it, it parallels um Kelly too right and um despite Kelly's sort of make or break soundbite of winning the rookie or winning the world title as rookie year. I don't think that's factually correct, but we'll let him have it. But the idea that, you know, he qualified ahead of his sort of um, generational contemporaries, right? And kind of had success. And then once, you know, his sort of the people in his age bracket kind of qualified, he already had all this momentum. So he defeated, you know, the generation ahead of him, he defeated his own generation, then had to reinvent for the ones that have kind of come out in that way. And he's done so in, in sort of wild, wild ways. Do you feel like with your own surfing, you, you actually spoke pretty humbly about where you have gaps that can be improved upon. Um, what are kind of the key things that you think you've had to work on or, or improve in the last few years to get back to, you know, a world champion status? Uh, I think, I mean, the main thing is heavy waves, number one. Like we, mm. for the most part of my career, we had the women's tour in um, condition. Like we were actually at separate locations to the men. Right. Um, you know, one year we finished our tour in Huntington Beach uh, in the middle of the year. So, um, you know, we were always finished at Honolulu Bay, which Honolulu, when it's big, is a, is a heavy wave, but it's not a pipeline and it's, it's, um, it's not a Tahiti and, and so I never had to compete at these locations and I'd say that's why I never really pushed myself to go there and surf them. Like I'm, mm. I'm just, I was so consumed by what it takes to win a world title and focusing on those events and those types of waves that I, I really didn't push myself outside, outside of that zone to learn anything new or, I don't know, I almost feel like I'm not a real surfer because I wasn't interested in like chasing a swell to to Chopu because I was more interested in being like, hey, my next contest is at, at Snapper Rocks. Why right. am I going to go charge right. some some big left and risk getting injured to show up and or miss the next event? Um, so I think that maybe my actual surfing was let down a lot because I wasn't you know, pushing myself to learn these, these other waves. And now that we have these waves on tour, yeah, I feel like I'm fully a grom that has no idea what I'm doing out there. But at the same time, it's a really lovely feeling to know that I'm showing up to these events as a world champion, but feeling like, whoa, this is new to me. This gets me excited because I, I need to learn more. I need to figure out how I can be better and and put my time in and and that if anything will extend my career for another five to ten years you know it's it's um it's a great feeling right and and that's i'm glad you brought that up too because you know on the topic of front row seats like you've had front row seats to at least three multi-time world champions you know lane beachley who you were close with when when you came on tour and she'd been on tour for a while um, actually, maybe four. Um, and then, you know, Mick Fanning, who, who's sort of a Gold Coast contemporary of you, who won three and has retired. Lisa Anderson and Kelly Slater. Lisa's got four world titles. You know, Kelly's got his 11. They're, um, you know, Roxy Quicksilver team members with you. And when you, in, in your experience with these four different people, are there things about their final chapters of their competitive career and then kind of post-competitive career careers that you've noticed or taken or tried to 
start working on for yourself. And I'm not saying you're anywhere near retiring from competition full time, but you know what I mean, where it's yeah. like not every surfer that falls off tour, not every world champion that decides to hang it up has immediate success off tour. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've thought about, you know, knowing, knowing uh, your relationships with these people. Yeah, I think the main thing is sort of setting yourself up financially to know that, mm. you know, you don't have to fall back on working um, a nine to five job or, you know, an office job or something to, to sustain a, an income. But um, yeah, that, that's always something that I, I'm so lucky. I have great guidance in my parents and, and mm. the people around me who have always, you know, helped me to stay and I don't know, I'm not a very flashy person, so I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like wasting money on race cars and stuff, but, uh, <laughs> but <Not> I, <laughs> yeah. but, um, I really admired how much Lane was so, um, business minded, you know, she, mm. towards the end of her career, when she stopped working with Billabong and, and different companies, her sponsorships, she was no, by no means did she want to stop. You know, she was like, I'm going to keep working hard. I'm going to create a brand for myself outside of surfing. I want to be a motivational speaker. I want to tell my story. I want to improve other people's lives and, and giving back in a way that was much more than just like, you know, starting a surf school or something. She was like, I want to do this on a grand scale. And, and, uh, I think she's doing really well with that. And I see someone like Mick, who's also, you know, he's an incredible businessman. He's got, he's, fingers in all kinds of different little projects here and there and and uh people love Mick Fanning you know I think his his legacy is is what is so special because he's able to to pick and choose the things that he wants to work with and then they'll be successful no matter what just because of the fact that he's a quality human being who um you know people really admire his work ethic and what he does so Mm. the way I think about it is um how I carry myself in and around these events and these world titles now mm. will carry over into my career post-surfing. You know, it's if people can really get a gauge on my character and, and, and whether they like me or not, then I think they'll, you know, that'll make a big um, decision and whether, you know, people want to associate me or brands want to associate with me post my professional career. But um mm. But yeah, I'm really lucky. You know, I, I love working with Roxy and, and I love working with my current sponsors to to do fun projects. And I see somebody like Lisa who continually has a relationship with Roxy and and yeah, that's yeah, to be able to continue that is um is really cool. And it definitely I mean, what a wonderful life to be able to continue being supported by a surf company who just lets you go surfing. You know, it's it's such a good point you bring up just on I mean, so much has changed just in terms of like athlete sponsorship, right? And and as someone who's gotten to observe you throughout your career, it does seem like the more you've achieved, the, the, the elevated realms you've kind of occupied, you've been able to have kind of a, a balance of the agenda of the brands that that maybe when you were younger wanted to dictate how you're represented versus you having kind of more agency and, and kind of collaborating with a lot of these brands in terms of what stories you're telling and how you're presenting yourself in a more authentic way. Is that fair? Like if you kind of look over the course of your career? Oh, totally. Um, I mm. think when, you know, from the age of 12 until I'd say, you know, my early twenties, I was so focused on perfecting my craft of surfing 
that I really didn't even think twice about how I looked off a surfboard. You know, I didn't care what I was wearing or, um, you know, how I was talking or anything. It was just like surf, 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 surf. And, and then after I, um, you know, was winning world titles and then you, you start to see yourself in the media, you start to see how you look, you start to hear yourself in interviews and you're like, Whoa, hang on a second. That sounded terrible. That looks horrific. We need to change some stuff here. And I also, I felt like it was, it's stressful. Like as a young woman to, Mm. you know, think that you need to look beautiful and speak perfectly and, you know, uphold this image of like, that stereotypical beach girl that's like sexy and cool, but also rips on a surfboard. I, I I definitely felt a bit of pressure there. Um, not, not so much from my sponsors, but definitely from just the world of, you know, being in, in media and society, society. Exactly. So, um, that was when I actually employed my older sister, Whitney to come on as like a stylist and, um, and I just have to give her so much credit for helping me shape my entire style off the surfboard. Like my my whole brand, everything was really um, because Whitney had a vision for how it could look. And, and that's because both of us were really uh, big fans of the women in sport that could cross over into both worlds, like the Maria mm. Sharapovas. You know, right. she was a, a tennis champion, but she was also so well respected in the fashion world, and and she was invited to all the who's who of, you know, um, the world of uh, fun and parties and and just the social life that, you know, it kind of it's extra work, but it elevates your brand in a way that makes you more enticing for companies to want to work with. So that is a whole nother world and, and a whole nother part of being a professional athlete that. I think a lot of people, they either love it or hate it and they can embrace it and, you know, use it to their advantage or they can just kind of be overwhelmed by it and not even want to go there. And for me, I was lucky that I could just focus on my surfing and I could let my sister Whitney really decide, okay, you know, every photo shoot I was doing or whatever, Whitney would come and, and or she'd go over the whole wardrobe, how it's going to look, um, even down to like, the makeup artist is putting makeup on me and and my sister was like, no, no eyeliner, no this, no that. We want natural. Right. We want Steph. We want Steph to be as authentic and, you know, just as as naturally beautiful as she is. And that really opened my mind up to the fact that when you are genuine and honest, then people love it. People resonate with it. And, and that to me was the easiest way to do it because I was like, oh, okay, sweet. I just have to be myself. But also yeah be aware of of um you know how you can tell your story the way you want to and curate your brand but um yeah I was lucky that I could work with Whitney and and uh we did it in I think a really nice way to to then help the brands that I'm working with make both of our you know the advertising or whatever it is that we're doing make it look cool and and genuine so it's I mean it's I'm it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because obviously there's been a double standard like in surfing, but probably most like men's and women's marketing, but, but particularly in surfing, since we're going to speak about what we know about, you could argue that some of the highest paid male surfers on the planet are not what, you know, the consensus population would deem uh, traditionally attractive. Um, 
but it almost never really mattered. Whereas we went through a period in the surfing world with, with women surfing where the part about how well they surfed or not was sort of secondary to the way they were positioned um, or, or sort of hypersexualized. And I feel like so much nuance gets lost in that because it's either like, that's really bad or that's really good or that's what makes sense, et cetera. And to hear you talk about working with your sister on sort of like executing or exercising the agency that you have to say, this is how I want to be positioned. This is how I want to look, et cetera. If you didn't have that, it's safe to say that the industry would have done that for you and maybe in a way that wasn't authentic to who you really are. Totally. And one of the greatest things I was ever taught was don't be afraid to say no. Like if you're mm. not comfortable with something, if it doesn't align with your values or who, you know, even if they are offering a lot of money, you know, it's like does that really align with who you are and what what story you want to tell? Um, it's important to ask yourself those questions before you, you say yes to anything. So... Um, and knowing that fairly on in my fairly early on in my career, then I think that really helped both of us navigate, you know, the companies that I worked with, the, the brands that I really um, felt I could align with genuinely, and and I was able to sort of draw a line in in where I felt like, you know, I didn't have to over-sexualize my image or anything like yes there's there's definitely a lot of photo shoots and stuff that I've done where I was like oh I look back and go oh that's terrible but at the same time it it helped me to learn what I like and what I don't like about myself um and sure I wish I could go back online and delete a few things like <laughs> a few photos that I wish you know just didn't exist but at the same time it's just funny you know if you can't laugh about yourself and things you've done in the past then you know I think we're taking ourselves too seriously. Sure. Well, if you if you figure out how to go and delete photos of yourself off the internet, <laughs> I think I have like zero zero or point zero zero one percent of the amount that you do, but mine are not that great. So I'll, right. I'm happy to but take I think, you up on okay, it. Okay. One of the the most um, well, the things that I'm really proud of is that I feel like I've been able to have a balance between like being a competitive athlete and being a you know a, a female in surfing where it's sort of like a lot of people say to me, oh, my God, I just love your style. And then I, I have a lot of people that say to me, I love that you just surf in board shorts. Like I love that mm. you don't feel this need to, you know, to, yeah, to surf in tiny little bits of Nycra, uh, little bits of Lycra that, um, that, you know, surely are uncomfortable to surf in. But, yes, I can see that young girls feel pressure from social media and whatnot to kind of live up to whatever the standard is. But I just hope that through my actions, I'm able to sort of say to them, hey, freak what you feel. Like if you really love um, what you're wearing and how you're doing it, then go for it. But also know that, you know, you want to be comfortable. You want to be able to perform the best way that you can. And and if that means wearing a full suit in the middle of summer, then do that. Like um, it's to me, it's been about the surfing. If I can really focus on that, then that's first and foremost. And, and, uh, and to, to find a, a balance between the two where I can be like, just have a, a nice aesthetic in both of those realms. And that's been, it's been important to me. And I think kind of to what you're talking about before, like even beyond your full-time competitive how I put it, the expression of you as a full-time competitor, it seems like a lot of the brands that you're working with today 
as you pointed out, are actually working with you because of who you are um, inside and outside the jersey. I mean, you know, Roxy, you mentioned your shape or DH, it's a longtime partner. But, you know, groups like Audi and even Yeti, it seems like Yeti's sort of partnership with you, which you're now an ambassador for, has to do really with who you are and, and your love of maybe getting outside of the jersey as well. How, how did that partnership kind of come together? Yeah, um, Yeti approached me uh, through a friend of ours, Glenn Casey in Australia, and and he wanted to um, to bring a woman onto the team and and a surfer. And uh, yeah, I guess I mean I've always loved Yeti products. Who doesn't love Yeti products? Like they, well, well, what's your what's your go to like day to day? My day to day, I use the Yonder. I'm drinking out of a net right now. Um, <laughs> I actually love the Yonder because I don't like cold water. So the insulated ones, they're great. The best thing about the insulated ones is that you can actually fill them with hot water when you're in California and after you surf, you get a hot shower. But um, I I love these because they're clear, so I can see how much I've drunk and how much more I've got <laughs> to drink. So that's pretty cool. But um, I mean, yeah, all the products. It the best one is actually the um, is it like 350 liters of it's oh, the a, big an, thing. an ice yep. bath? Yeah. 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 <laughs> They're rad. Um, but I just, I've always wanted to align myself with brands that I feel uh, obviously are of top quality. They're, I really love their storytelling and in, in their, their products and their advertising. Like I, I, I love that they work with John John and Mick Fanning and, and, you know, they're, their team of um, of athletes and adventurers, and it, it's not just surfers, you know, it's not just campers. It's mm. it's a bit of everything. And and I I did a trip with them recently up to I was actually after the finals last year I flew up to Vancouver and and we did a, a fun surf trip myself, Mark Healy and Keith Malloy, and um, it was just awesome because it was all about like hunting and adventuring to these places where you don't usually go and and it's like the surfing is just a small part of of what the the whole trip is about and and that that's actually where I get the most reward for for what I do because I sit back and I go wow I just won an eighth world title and it was like madness at the beach and super cool but here I am this is where I'm refueling my tank this is where I feel like I'm actually getting back to the spirit of surfing, which to me is adventure. It's looking for new waves. It's surfing new places. It's meeting new people who you feel like you've been friends with forever. And and I think that Yeti does such a good job at, through their storytelling and, and, you know, we're dragging these products through all of the different elements and, and they're withstanding all the pressure. So it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy working with them. And I'm, I mean, it's really cool that they've come on board as a partner with WSL. Mm. It's, um, I mean, that's a great partnership. And I think all the surfers are very happy walking around with all their new Yeti gear. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tell which are the best partnerships because it's the people that don't actually get paid by the partner <laughs> yeah. using the stuff. They're like, oh, this is great. Oh, exactly. The thing. Uh, I love, and it's cool. Like I, I like the way you position that too in the sense of, I mean, most people that win a, a world championship or world title or whatever sport – the first thing they probably do is, aside from the like, I'm going to Disneyland, is probably not, I'm going off grid in the backcountry of Vancouver um, to recharge, you know? And mm -hmm. I feel like that's just, it's a cool look into what actually keeps you going, you know, at, at, 
after so much achievement in your career where you're like, no, I, I could do the party. We could do a media tour or whatever it is, but like, there's always time for that. And it's like, I kind of need to, I, I, I need to tap out and kind of tap into something different for a change. Yeah. And I think it really makes you appreciate those competitive moments uh, more because it seems like there's so much build up to it. And then these great moments happen and then it's like, it's gone. Mm. So uh, you can't really hang on to it. You know, you have to like let go of it and then move forward and go, okay, what makes me feel good now? What, what am I going to be searching for next? And it, it's a new adventure. Right. It's, it's um, thinking about, I don't know, going into the wilderness makes you really think bigger picture. Like, okay, yeah, I won a trophy, but what is it that I can do with it? Like is winning that trophy going to help the, um, the the planet is it going to mm. help the you know the the overlogging in Vancouver Island I don't know there's you know there's kind of like it makes you ask yourself these questions that are really important in terms of the yeah just more than competitive surfing it's things that are bigger than you and your little world and and that's really crucial well said we uh we're gonna get to a couple more topics but we're gonna take one more break and we will be right back Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code THELINEUP15. That's manduka.com, code THELINEUP1515. So just before we went to break, you were talking about a little bit about like what continues to fuel you and, and you hear so often and you experience so often with people at the very top of their respective disciplines, whether it's sports or arts or whatever, they often say things like, I reached the top of the mountain, you know, I won the Super Bowl or I won the Masters or, you know, I won a Grammy and it didn't change my life the way I thought it was, mostly from a like psychological ego there was a hole that i thought this was going to fill and it didn't and so much of like human performance you know sadly in a lot of ways is often driven from you know places of of challenge you know whether you're sad or you're angry or you're impoverished like that is sort of the catalyzing force behind someone getting very good at a certain thing and achieving something throughout your career did you feel like achieving what you've achieved and, and performing at the level you've performed at for so long 
was there to kind of fix something in you or was it driven for you from a different place? It was driven from a different place. I would say that I, I don't know, I just always had this feeling of wanting to be the best at something, Mm -hmm. wanting to um, perform great. And I I mean, it really looking back on it, it's just ego, like the, the idea that I could perform something and and get a crowd of people around me clapping and being like, yeah, you're amazing. Like, it's pretty simple. That's <laughs> yeah, um, a human condition for sure. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that, like you said, it's important for human beings to be challenged and to push themselves to be working on things. Like, mm. uh, I guess nowadays because we don't have to work for our food as, you know, we're not out hunting sure. and gathering and, and doing those things, we have to sort of uh, find ways to make ourselves feel somewhat of a purpose or um, yeah, just to be, I, I think it's important to be working on things. It, it makes you uh, fulfilled in, in your day to day. And, and that can be anything, you know, that can be helping other people. It can be starting a company, it can be learning a new song or uh, on the guitar. It's, it's, um, it comes in many different shapes and sizes, but for me, I just purely loved the challenge of trying to win a contest and then making it to the top and holding up a trophy and being like, you're the best is cool. But I also was so, um, I was able to like let go of it really easily. And, and I think that's the hardest part for people. They like build you up. This is how you win, but no one really teaches you what happens after that. So for me, I just found it really easy to detach from the wins as easy as the losses and sort of be like, okay, well I won, but time continually just keeps rolling and what's next. And to be honest, as soon as I won the world title in at trestles last year, I remember having the trophy in my hands and like high-fiving people and getting all of these great feelings. But I was flashing back to the moments throughout the year that I was disappointed in myself. I kept flashing back to, you know, my poor performances um, and different stops on the tour where I was thinking that wasn't good enough. That wasn't world champion quality. Like, I guess I'm just hard on myself in those ways. And and it, it's not a bad thing because it made no. me think, okay, well, I've got work to do. That's where I well, need to get better. Totally. And it sounds like there's a healthy way to do that. And there's obviously an unhealthy way to do it. And, yeah. and, you know, a few weeks ago, Shane Dorian was on the podcast and he and I were talking about, um, being fathers and obviously we're in wildly different spaces in our lives and our achievements. But I said, you know, I, I wonder if you struggle with this, Shane is that, you know, maybe you didn't come from as, as easy a circumstances as you're providing for your kids. And that's part of what made you so successful and then you have kids and you're like, I want to give them everything they want because I love them, et cetera. But I know that comfort doesn't breed excellence. And he goes, and I, and I said, is that something, like, I think about that all the time. I said, is that something you think about? And he goes, it is the only thing I think about. And he said this really interesting thing about, he's like, I actually have to work to manufacture adversity for my kids because I know without it, there's not going to be that friction that that propels them in anything, whether it's mm-hmm. surfing or something else. And it it sounds like the way that you look at your own surfing and you look at, you know, the positives, the negatives, the the things that you have to improve is a way of kind of not manufacturing adversity, but at least looking at sort of soberly in the eyes. 
Definitely. I mean, I've lived a very comfortable life. You know, my my family, everything has been awesome and it still is. And um, so, you know, I, I often think about the greatest surfers in the ocean and I think about their their story and maybe they've had like family trauma or, mm. you know, they didn't have a father around or whatever that kind of gave them this drive to be like, I need to prove why I'm so good to the world because there was right. something missing from my life. And I'd never had that. Like I'd, I've always had so much love and, and care for my family and support that I did have to, yeah, basically manufacture those moments. But I, I do it specifically when I'm in competition. Like mm. it, it really comes down to like those moments where I'm like, or even in training, you know, I really have to push myself through these moments where it's like, okay, this sucks, but these are the moments you grow the most, those dark, deep moments, you know. And, and yeah, I've had some, some traumatic experiences in my life that have helped me sure. to grow and, and uh, learn about my character. But, yeah, I, I actually – it's more like acting, you know, to show up to a contest and I'm a pretty happy, easygoing person where I have so much respect and love for everyone. All the girls on tour are so awesome. And I, I do have to kind of fake a bit of a story in my head that – it's similar to like the, you know how Michael Jordan was in The Last Dance talking about how he'd just right, have to yeah. make something up. And I totally could, I mean, that resonated with me so much because I had the same, and I still do have that same feeling because I'm competitive. If I just tell myself the right story, then it, it can kick into gear pretty easy. It, it also makes me think of what we were talking about before the break about, you know, the, the figures that you've existed around that have been in similar atmosphere, whether it's, you know, uh, Lane and her seven world titles or, or Lisa and her four world titles, Mick and his three, Kelly and his 11. And, and it sounds like you have a ton of gas left in the tank to continue to perform, to continue to motivate yourself. But it does seem like whether it's those four surfers or other surfers we know, transitioning out of the tour is what you talked about before, you certainly want to make sure you've got your finances in order, but there's also an ego component to that too, where it is, am I going to be okay? Maybe not getting the same amount of attention or praise, not doing this that I do doing this. And, and I wonder if that's something that you think about where you go, no, I'm going to be comfortable when I do decide to leave. Um, because I feel very fulfilled or no, I've seen other people try to make the transition and it, it was not necessarily about financial. It was just about, I didn't get the same amount of attention. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's oh, for sure. I could imagine, um, stepping out of the, the tour and yeah, you don't have, you know, you're not regularly seeing or hearing about yourself, um, online or it's, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm more shy than, you know, I definitely have to work, work it up a little bit more to kind of be, you know, online and having more of a presence right. publicly. But um, so I'm okay with the idea of stepping back, but for sure, I, I would imagine, I mean, already now the focus, uh, like the stab surfer of the year awards, they had like, you know, they have, a collection of the world's best surfers voting on who their favorite surfers were. And I remember looking at a few of the votes from different surfers and being like, oh, damn, I didn't even make the top five of so-and-so. Like, they weren't into me. Demoed. Like, I was actually really sad about it. <laughs> um, and that's that was a moment to me where I actually thought about, yeah, leading into the retirement process, uh, how that would feel. And, 
yeah, it would suck, but it's just the nature of it. Like you gotta, you gotta deal with it. And um, I'm, I think all because of a staff peer poll. <laughs> Come on. Well, no. <laughs> I ended up winning it in the end, but I just yeah, remember, yeah, fully, yeah. I remember thinking that's not your like, kryptonite. Let's get real. Come on. <laughs> no, but it was more just like you know looking at these surfers and who they voted for, and and I respect them as surfers so much, and being like, it wasn't a bad thing. It just made me think. Oh, okay. How how would I need to improve my surfing to impress these people? And that takes mm. me right back to when I was t- ten years old or eleven years old, learning to surf for the first time. And all I wanted to do was like surf in the shore break, and in the hopes that the people swimming along the shore were like seeing me surf, and they were impressed by what I was doing. And uh, yeah, it, it's the same feeling, which is hilarious that it's still there. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it's all good. But I think, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's definitely a process that I'm sure you'll go through at some point. Or maybe I'll just keep going like Kelly and just keep on going. <laughs> well, I mean, I, that's interesting. I, I do think, I mean, everyone's so different, right? And, it, and I think diff- people have kind of different chemistries and different approaches to everything right and some people have addictive personalities i would be surprised if you said you had one but that's possible but do you think that on the on the similar topic do you think that fame is an addiction like anything else i don't feel like i'm famous like i i find that people or fans come up to me and and they it's like a such a i don't know they they come up to me and they say hey so cool to meet you. I love what you do. Have a great day. There's not this like obsessive fan culture that I'm sure Kelly or like rock stars right. and celebrities have. Like I really feel like I have a, a really nice. Um, like a healthy interaction. A between healthy you and the fans. level yeah. of fame that is not overwhelming. I'm sure it's not going to be hard to, to dissociate with. Like I, I kind of, I think that maybe post my career I will have the same level of fame you know for the rest of my life where it's just like people come up to me and they say hey I I really enjoy watching you surf I love what you do um keep it up yeah there's not like a a crawling at me like give me photos give me this give me that it's not that at all and and so it's uh it's fulfilling but I could see it being consistently like this for a long time because it's not too over the top and I I don't know. Maybe because I hope that people like the way I give off my Mm. ease and and my nature is to sort of make people I want to make people feel good that are around me that I think they fans kind of feel that. And so they give that to me in return. I was going to say almost the same thing. Like I do think probably the, the healthy level of interaction you have with most of your fans is based largely with how you are as a person and how you kind of present yourself and express yourself. And you see uh, people take a different approach to that where the volume on the intensity is turned way up, like in those interactions. And I guess my question wasn't so much like, are you addicted to fans? I don't think you are, but just in general for people who reach that, it does seem like people do get addicted to the attention, but you're, you're also probably someone who, who started developing their career way before, you know, social media kind of took fire as well. So for you, you'd probably be like, I could take it or leave it, you know? I'm not really addicted to fame, but the moments that I am addicted to, and it's something that I'm, now that I'm becoming more of a sports fan, like, Mm. 
I feel like I was just so focused on surfing in the past. I didn't really pay too much attention to other sports. But now, specifically after winning the finals in such a fashion, like getting a taste of what that grand final finish is like and coming out with the, the win on top, like doing it in, in that fashion gave me this feeling of um, elation that I hadn't experienced before from a world title. Like to do it in a fashion where you know it's going to go down on that day, um, you have to get through the entire field. You have to get through Carissa twice. You know, the all of the odds are against you. Can you do it? Like it's all in my hands at that point. And to be able to apply myself and make it happen it really gave me this sense of like when I watch a grand final of, of whatever it is, you know, the Premier League grand final, you know, it's like if I'm watching, there's not a grand final in Premier League, but if, if you're watching like the Super Bowl or whatever it is, it's these moments in sport, you're watching the Australian Open tennis final and it's like, you know, two titans against each other and you on the right. edge of your seat the whole time. That's what I love about sport. And so now I can say I'm fully addicted to that feeling of being in a grand final moment and knowing everything's on the line and can you do it? Like that, that's what the finals, this new format of the finals gave me. And I'm totally addicted to it. And that's why I want more. Right. And that, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that in your own words, because that was kind of the genesis for the redesign as well, you know, where you go, yeah, every event matters. You have to perform across the season to get your ticket here. But what does it feel like to win it in the water against the best surfers of the year, mm -hmm. to win the world title coming out of the water, to not be, you know, in a locker room or in a house and someone, you know, loses early. And it is cool to f hear you say it felt different, you mm -hmm. know, than your other ones. So um, it's yeah, excellent. It was, it was epic. <laughs> We, uh, we, we sort of joked a little bit about um, Surfline and, and where they're at at the moment. As of today, as of recording, which is about a week out from the start of the Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal, forecast looks pretty good, knock on every wood I can find, um, in terms of wind and swell, which would be uh, uh, if we get kind of a consistent set of um, waves across the entire event, that'll be a nice change of pace for 2023. It, have you been to Super Tubos when it's sort of fired day in and day out? And and if so, like how do you how do you kind of rate your chances on on at events like that at that kind of wave? Yeah, I always struggled with Super Tubos because we we've had an event there for a long time, and um, I swear I could count on one one finger the <laughs> amount of times I've scored great waves in a heat. I think Europe is tough because it's so tidal, you know, and when it yeah. pumps, it pumps for like maybe two, three hours, and then it switches off. So when you have a full day of competition, um, it's really hard to, to sneak a heat in when the waves are pumping. And um, especially in the wintertime, you know, it gets a lot of swell and it's like a lot of wind and storm and there's a lot going right. on. But um, I was speaking to um, Richard Marsh the other day and he was saying that Frederico, who has been in Portugal this whole winter, he said it's been absolutely firing um, he can't believe how good it's been. Like everyone's tired because the waves are just too good. Been it's, good. Yeah. it's been uncrowded. But uh, Francisco Spinola, he also told me that the banks are as good as they get. So um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'd love to just – I just to be honest, the best feeling in competitive surfing is getting spat out of barrels 
in front of a crowd on the beach, you know, there really is no better feeling than paddling into a wave, you know, you're going to get barreled, pumping through it and, and feeling that spray on your back as you come out and, and you hear the cheers from the beach. So if that can come into fruition at Super Tubos, I'll take it. <laughs> I love it. You, you mentioned your uh, longstanding relationship with Darren Hanley at DHD Surfboards. Um, and this year we're doing the, uh, the Vizsla CT Shaper rankings. Um, mm-hmm. So we're measuring kind of board builder performance across the year and we're, we're combining the men's and women's results from the quarterfinals or better. And he's currently ranked third um, in, in large part due to your performances uh, at Sunset Beach, you and, you and Molly Picklums. Um, but he's doing well, and 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 that does feel like one of the longer-standing relationships between you know world-class surfers and world-class shapers that we see in surfing. And and you haven't kind of gone off to other shapers or come back. It's sort of been a constant relationship, even if you've maybe ridden other craft in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Darren shaped my first custom boards for me when I was thirteen years old, and uh, we've been together ever since. So. Um, <laughs> You know, there's there's something special about our relationship where Darren is, he's like a he's like the cool uncle who will, you know, take you out and you can get mischievous together and, you know, have fun adventures and and then uh, he shapes great boards on the side. I'm really lucky that I get to ride off the back of both Mick Fanning and Ethan Ewing. Um, they obviously fine-tune their crafts down to, you know, <laughs> everything and I can kind of learn a lot from them I would say that I'm Darren's easiest team rider because I probably ordered the least amount of boards and um you know I find one that works good and then I just use it the whole year round (laughs) but uh (laughs) but yeah I um no I love working with Darren he's great and and he's also not fussed with like I more recently I've been able to ride some Ryan Birch boards and some Alex Lopez shapes and and um I just love to experiment with different crafts and I think that it's important for surfers to do that. You may find something new in a weird craft that you can actually um, add back into your shortboards and, and they might add something cool. But, yeah, I think that um, I'm super lucky that Darren is just a – he's an absolute legend, if anything. That's that's actually more important to me. What I was wondering, though, was like say in Hawaii, what happens if the surfers are riding – you know, I was riding a Takoro and I know I saw a lot of the guys riding Pangs that their normal shapers are sharp eye. So yep. what happens there in the, the rankings or like so who gets the points? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so it's the it's the board which the surfer won their last heat. And we're only okay. counting quarterfinals or better. So gotcha. if you were riding, you know, Shaper X um, in the round of 16 and you switched to Shaper Y in the quarterfinals, and lose. Uh, Shaper X gets those points, not Shaper Y. But we did spend a ton of time talking because that was like the number one question that came up when we were talking to the shapers. I mean, They're Hawaii like, is like the only place that that really happens. It, so. it was, but you know, it was interesting is, and I do think this has to do with just the, the tricky too. forecast we had this year was that so many surfers were riding, you know, Pangs and Arakawas and Takoros. And I was like, pouring over the photos and making like talking to Strider and be like, can you check what, what logos that board got? Um, Pete Mel, but, um, they didn't perform as well as we probably thought they would have. And I think that has to do with, you know, the wave conditions and, and, and both events. But I do think it's cool because it's part of the conversation with the program that Vizsla supporting too, where 
yeah, those people probably have been building boards for the world's best surfers forever and ever, but no one's really talked about it because that surfer may be on, you know, endorsement contract Y with the shaping company and no one really ever talks about it. But it was fun to do during the event because we got to give a lot of the local shapers their credit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the Hawaiian shapers are, I got some boards of Arikawa as well. And, yep. and um, yeah, it's really, it's a, a different world shaping for those types of waves and so it's, um, do you, it's but cool do you, on that. that note too, like looking ahead, do you think that you would use those boards at like, I'm making it up like Margaret river or Tahiti? Do you, do you think that that's got a chance for you? Um, definitely Tahiti, not so much Margaret river. I, mm. I got, you know, my Darren Hanley's work really well in pretty much right. every location. Um, and, but there's something different about Hawaii and Tahiti. There's just a little more ocean <laughs> that's seems to sure. be folding on top of you. Um, and so, yeah, I actually packed all my Arakawas and I've sent them back to Australia. So they'll be there for if I make the cut and I make it to Tahiti, then um, I'll I'll definitely take them there. I saw Kanoa and a bunch of those um, Arakawas yeah. there last year and, and he had an excellent result. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. I love it. Well, before you go, we did put out um, some questions to uh, folks that follow us at, at the lineup pod on Instagram. First question is from at chris.fowler.187, who asks, do you think your greatest enjoyment in surfing is still ahead of you? Great question. I do. I think that um, on tour, we may sacrifice a bit of, uh, you know, adventure time in, in searching for waves or doing trips to to chase swells and stuff. And, um, that's because, you know, the tour is, it takes up a lot of time, but, um, I can see in the future that I, you know, I, I really want to, um, surf great waves and capture them on film. And, and, and I, I mean, I don't know, that's tough. I've had so many great moments already, but, <laughs> but I think that's what's so cool about surfing. You never, like, you never really know what the next day could bring. And, um, yeah, it's that, what's that Jerry Lopez quote? You can, you should only surf, uh, enough so that you can surf again tomorrow. <laughs> never Smart. surf. What is it? Never surf too much that you can't surf again tomorrow. It's like, yeah, where, uh, surfers are continuously looking for that next great feeling. So yeah, I think it's still a, Still more to come. Last question we have from the Instagram community, I'm just gonna find it here, is from at shapeshiftersmag, who asks, uh, excluding yourself and Carissa Moore and Tyler Wright, which of the women, either on tour or off tour, do you think is next to win a world title? I think Carissa is next to win a world title, yeah. Um, oh, excluding Chris. Sorry. Oh, so sorry. You gotta, excluding you gotta, not counting oh, sorry, yourself, sorry, sorry, Tyler, or Chris. Oh, sorry, okay. Sorry. Um, okay. I would. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> There's no safe space on this question because you got to make a shot. Um, I think if it's at lowers, I think Tatiana. I really think mm. Tatiana would be next to to do that. Her back end is super strong. Um, she's a smart competitor and and uh, she's had a taste of it. You know, she was so close to winning it in the past and um, we're probably due for a goofy foot world champ sometime soon. 
We always are. We always do for a goofy fit of world champ. Well, um, thanks to everyone who wrote in at the lineup pod. We are now down to our final segment. It's time for the lightning round. These are 10 questions for you to answer as quickly as you can. Ooh, I do have your I answers from several years ago, so I can, really? I can back you up on, on if you've oh, changed sweet. or not. Um, first question. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? Oh, my goodness. Thruster. Mm. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mm. Burrito or pizza? Pizza. All right. You're two for three on, on same answers the last time. I've evolved. Or, well, actually, excuse me. One for three. Excuse me. You said twin fin and you said tea last time. Um, but we were, that we were in I was trying to seem like a healthy alternative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just had too many know? drinks the night before. And we're like, no, we're just, my new life is, is Dave Rostovich. It's going to be great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, someone get me a tea. Um, last book you read. If this is the same answer, we're going to have to talk. Last book I read, um, The Courage to be Disliked. Mm. Is that, was that the same but, book? I hope not. No, Please. no, no. That's what so, I meant. Yeah, That'd I was going to say. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, uh, best surf film ever. Best surf film ever. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to say the film that me and my friends just made. It's called Surfing. <laughs> I like it. I like the choice. Um, is it? We can watch it now. It's out. Streaming. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Check it out. Perfect. You have to All type right, in like we... surfing, but then put in like my name, Nikki Van Dyke, Macy Callahan, right. Dumity. Yeah, it's a little hard. It to does. Find, it does feel like there's like here are 17 surfing, trillion but... <laughs> results. And you're like, what am, I, what am I looking yeah, for? Yeah, that's totally part of our plan. It worked. It worked. Um, uh, one wave you never have to go back to. Ooh. Um, oh, ay, ay, ay. I never have to go back to, damn, I was about to say three different ones and I thought about all the people that would hate me for saying that. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm going to give you an out because not everyone likes to answer this one for that exact reason. The fact that you have three is that's good enough for me. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm really not a huge fan of, I mean, Rottnest Island. I don't need to go back there. Mm, okay, fair. Totally fair. If you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Oh, my goodness. Pipeline. Mm, that was what you said last time. Mm. Um, best person to share a lineup with? Uh, any goofy footer works for me. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. Wor that's a good. It's good. Uh, <laughs> worst person to share a lineup with? Uh, worst person would be Italo. He's takes everything and he's incredibly fast at paddling back out, getting another one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gave the same reason last time, but you said Kelly. So that's interesting. Okay. Italo is the new, that makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. Uh, you're not the first person to say Kelly's Italo. Kelly's chilled out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, last one. Okay. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by. Mm. Um, flying business class to Europe. Hey, <laughs> now we're talking. That's that's the achievements unlocked. <laughs> Steph Gilmore, uh, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations 
on everything, on your eight world titles, on your dozens of championship tour wins, on just being an awesome person uh, inside and outside of surfing. Look forward to watching you um, at the Maya Rip Curl Pro Portugal and at all the events this season, including the ones post-relegation. Uh, good luck, and uh, thank you so much for coming back on the lineup. Thank you for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed. hope I didn't waffle on too much. <laughs> That's all this is, is just waffling. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with reigning eight-time world champion Stephanie Gilmore. I hope you enjoyed it. The third stop on the 2023 WSL Championship Tour, the Mayo Rip Curl Pro Portugal, opens its competition window in just a few short hours and will stream live at worldsurfleague.com and the WSL app. Do not miss it. Today's episode is produced by Miguel Clemente with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges as recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Kumeyaay native people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Mm-hmm.